Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Breakfast special. Welcome to the Breakfast Show's Environment Special Climate Connections. Today, the 30th of November 2023, will go down in history books as one of the biggest days in our climate change chapter, as the United Nations Climate Talks, better known as COP28, kick off in Dubai. For the next two weeks, heads of states and diplomats from nearly 200 countries, scientists, and conservationists are gathered there for a global stocktake. It's the first formal assessment of whether nations are on track to meet a goal they set in Paris in 2015 to limit the rise in average global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre industrial levels. Before that, here's a spoiler alert. The planet has already warmed by 1.2 degrees Celsius, and emissions that are driving that change are going up, not down. But world leaders, scientists, and industry stakeholders have not lost hope in collective cooperation. Director General of the International Solar Alliance, Dr. Ajay Mathur, who was a leading climate change negotiator at the Paris climate negotiations, says that was the very ingredient that bound them together back then. As far as I was concerned, the toughest part was choosing which restaurant to go to. One of the good things about the Paris COP was there was a vast amount of choice. On the kinds of suggestions that we could make. The most important thing that we were negotiating on was number one, that we are able to come up with a framework, a structure that withstands the test of time. Second, that we are able to do this in a manner that countries find it to their interest to participate.、Uh, remember that this followed the Kyoto. Targets in which most of the major countries opted out in 2010 rather than staying in. We did not want such a thing to happen again. Therefore, obviously, there was a huge amount of discussion, but what we finally agreed on was a process that every five years countries would pledge what is it that they would achieve. So, my name is Matthias Brunneri. I'm the Swedish climate ambassador and also head of delegation to UNFCCC. So, I lead the Swedish team at the Global Climate Negotiation. Well, I came in a couple of years after the process completed the, the Paris Agreement. So, the focus when I started was very much on what we call the Paris Rulebook, sort of the rules for how to implement the Paris Agreement. And that was then settled in Glasgow at COP26. There is that kind of trajectory within the negotiation. What it sort of sets us apart is The speed of the transition, where some of us within the European Union, for example, are eager to make sure that we can make this transition happen as soon as possible. Of course, sort of within a framework which sort of leaves no one behind, whereas others are more keen to, to ensure that you know, the transition should take longer. At most COP meetings, we manage to find some kind of middle ground.、Uh, sometimes that middle ground is something which nobody is really happy with,、uh, and sometimes you know, some would be more happy with it. And very often, the devil's in the details when finalizing agreements. Ambassador Frumery says that small nuances in words could very well make the difference. For example, at COP26, when we discussed、uh, the phase out of coal, I mean, should it be phased out or phased down? We ended up with phased down. It might sound sort of very similar, but there is a striking nuance difference、uh, between the two. 
Uh, and also at COP27, when we had the conversation on whether we should make a commitment to phase out fossil fuels, also you could see very strong disagreements between various countries and groups. And I think we'll have the same conversation also at COP28. But also where you would see differences between parties uh, is very much related to the process itself. You know, how do we structure the work? What should the agenda look like? If you look closely at the rhetoric, loss and damage have emerged as the two most controversial words in climate finance today. For example, scientists have attributed recent unpredictable rainfall and floods that wiped out entire farms in Ghana to climate change. According to Ghana's Deputy Minister for Energy, Andrew Mercer, who will pay and who will have access to the money remains a major issue. The situation of the local communities is really that there are nine districts, three regions that have been affected by the recent water spillage from the Akosobo Dam. That is really as a result of excess rain. Since 1966 or 67, we never had such experiences until now. I had the benefit of visiting the communities that have been updated with rain, complete economic activity disrupted, was not displaced. And so the effect really is real. But vital talks on how richer countries should compensate poorer nations for the effects of extreme weather brought about by climate change are in limbo. Obviously, if the transition is to be just, then you would expect that the parameters that are set for Ghana and Africa definitely not be the same as those that are set for the global West. Because we are the receiving end largely of the impact of climate change. We really do not have a choice, but we have to do it in a just manner. We cannot afford for our assets to be stranded when people have exploited them and built their economies and asking us to use the minimal amounts that we have to transition. So uh, that, that's where we are. And I hope that COP28 uh, will begin to see some change in the conversation as to how the transition really is funded in a manner that ensures that everybody who is coming to the table is not shortchanged. In that spirit, Mr. Mercer also hopes that other nations can see the country's efforts to combat the trilemma of energy security, energy equity, and environmental sustainability. Presently, Ghana's energy uh, electricity access is about 88.6. Universal access is 90. But we're looking to actually achieve 100% recently scaling up renewable energy program, building mini grids, various communities to ensure that we're able to achieve 10% of our solar and other renewable energy sources. Okay, among the general population, still people don't take the time to, as it were, apprise themselves of these things. And, and so what we have sought to do, for example, when we were formulating our energy transition plan, was to do extensive stakeholder engagements from all levels of government. Beyond the energy transition framework that we launched, uh, we actually launched also our investment plan, which will require up to about 550 billion US dollars. And so we have a huge challenge as to whether we are able to access the so-called funding that is available. But largely, we have to depend on ourselves. So we explore natural resources, our hydrocarbon resources, albeit in a sustainable, environmentally sustainable manner, to pay for part of our transition costs. 
The same worries echo in Dr. Matur's work with the International Solar Alliance, which launched a global solar facility in October in hopes of attracting finance for the solar and renewable energy sectors in developing countries, in particular Africa. In 2022, approximately $500 billion was invested in renewables. In the first half of 2023, it had already crossed $360 billion. And we will probably be somewhere in the $550 billion range by the end of this year, possibly in excess of that. So this compares favorably with the total electricity generation capacity money that went in at the peak of the fossil fuel boom. But the problem is that the vast amount of this money, somewhere near three-fourths of it, has gone into the developed countries, the OECD countries and China. It is this huge difference that is bothering us because what we'd like to see is that the energy transition away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy occurs across the world in all countries. All of Africa, for example, received less than 3% of the total money that went into renewables. When we talked to financing institutions, they said they were afraid that they would not get a return. But when we looked at the numbers, the non-repayment was less than 2% across Africa. What the problem was, was there were delays in payment. Not so much non-repayment, but delays in payment. Expectations for COP28 remain mixed, but one thing that's clear is that accelerated global cooperation and unwavering hope are crucial in the next decade as the planet careens towards a climate disaster. Director General of IRENA made the point that we are lagging behind. Well, the talk is good, but I would love to see more action, accelerated action. People putting their money where their mouth is achieve the targets that we set for ourselves. We ought to work together in a much more concerted, collaborative manner to make sure that we can get this right. Well, so far, I don't know whether I should be hopeful, but I guess that as the years grow nearer and nearer, and people see 2030 staring in our face, only seven years away. Let's see how it goes. Hopefully next year, depending on what I see post-COP 28, I will be able to tell you whether I'm hopeful or otherwise. But for now, I'm not so sure. Our key messages are uh, urgency and opportunity. So on the one hand, the urgency based on science, but also then the opportunities based on what the transition brings in terms of new jobs and growth. And making sure that we're sort of can jointly see the opportunities which transition brings. Of course, all countries have their different starting points. For some, it can be more challenging. So setting the right kind of policy framework ensuring that you have finance to implement the kind of policies that you set yourself, but then also technology in various sectors, which is then available to make sure that you can live up to the kind of commitments. What we hope would be achieved at COP28 is a very strong reiteration of the fact that we need a tripling of renewable energy achievements by 2030. It has often been said that we are looking at COP28 being the financing COP. In other words, countries make commitments to provide the resources. We have seen the UAE already commit something like $4.5 billion for investment in Africa. And this is for projects, for guarantees. What we see is that as more and more countries invest, particularly in underserved regions, we will start seeing a change as far as the trajectory 
around the world is concerned. To begin with, the trajectory will always be slow, but we need to move it in the positive direction. This was Climate Connections on Money FM 89.3. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A W E D I O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.